Amen. You may be seated. Let's open our Bibles together to Psalm 51. The psalm we just sang, a setting of, Psalm 51. And I'm going to read and preach verses 5 and 6 this evening. We're returning to this well-known psalm, this well-loved psalm that we're working our way through here and there on Sunday evenings. And in this psalm, we are overhearing David's confession of sin. He's confessing his sin to God after being confronted by the prophet Nathan. His sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. And David has not minced words about his sin. He's not made excuses for his sin. He has not blamed others for his sin. He has not blamed God for his sin. He hasn't pointed the finger at anyone other than himself. Nor has he pretended like his sin isn't that bad. No, he has looked it straight in the eye and called it what it is. And he has looked to God for mercy and forgiveness as we should too and as we can do through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in terms of the flow of thought here, he has asked for mercy and cleansing in verses 1 and 2. He's acknowledged that his sin is against God in verses 3 and 4. And now he traces his sin all the way back to the beginning, to the beginning of his life. And we'll see what he says about himself and about us by implication. We'll see how bad the diagnosis of our sin disease really is, and therefore how badly we need the gospel of our Savior, Jesus. But let's pray first, and then we'll begin. Lord, we thank you again for your word, for the fact that it is living and active. Thank you for the fact that it is true and trustworthy. Thank you also that it is powerful and life-changing. Please change us and sanctify us through your word this evening. Help us to see more clearly our sin and our Savior. And we pray in his name. Amen. Psalm 51, reading verses 5 and 6. This is the word of God. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me Wisdom in the secret heart. Two points this evening. You can see them in your sermon notes. Sinful from the beginning, that's verse 5. And sinful in the inward being, verse 6. And we'll take those two points in turn. In verse 5, David traces his sin all the way back to the beginning, as I said, to the beginning of his life. He confesses that he was sinful from the beginning of his life. He says again in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Note two things here. First, notice the word behold there. Both verse 5 and verse 6 begin with that word behold. And probably what that signals is that David's sort of taking it to the next level here in terms of his confession of sin. He's taking his confession a level down, a level deeper He just confessed that his recent sin was against God. And now he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. He's saying to God, 
my sin against you goes all the way back to the beginning of my life. This wasn't just something that was out of character for me. This has always been my character from the beginning as a sinner. As Matthew Henry put it, David says basically, Lord, I have not only been guilty of adultery and murder, but I have an adulterous and murderous nature. So this didn't just come out of nowhere. This came out of David's heart. This wasn't something new that came into David's life from outside of him. This was something old, very old, that came from within David's sinful heart. And he's saying to God, behold, see this, take note of this, Lord. He's confessing to God that he was sinful from the beginning. Of course, he's not telling God anything God doesn't already know. Of course, God already beholds this. He beholds all things. But David is confessing this to God. He's agreeing with God about this. He's going to God with it. And he's humbling himself for it. Behold, this is what's true of me, he's saying to God. The second thing we should note in verse 5 is this parallel statement. In the first line, he says, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in the second line, he says, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I was brought forth in iniquity means I was born in iniquity. I was brought forth from the womb in iniquity. My mother gave birth to a sinner, is what he's saying. So if someone said, it's a boy when David was born, that would have been a true statement. But so would the statement, it's a sinner. Equally true, even if ill-timed. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. But even further back than that, he says, in sin did my mother conceive me. I was a sinner even nine months earlier, even from the moment of conception. He's not saying that the act of conception was sinful. He's saying he was sinful from the moment of conception. So it's not society's fault. It's not that he was pure, but then he was corrupted by everyone around him. It's that he was corrupted within him. His problem was not so much a nurture problem as it was a nature problem. He was sinful by nature. By nature, he was a child of wrath, to use the language of Ephesians 2. He was not a blank slate at birth. He was a sinner at birth. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, a few things here by way of application as we think about this particular verse, verse 5. First of all, we learn from this and from other passages of Scripture that life begins at conception. Human life begins at the moment of conception. The ESV Study Bible has a helpful note on this. It points out that this verse certainly attributes moral accountability, the most important aspect of personhood, to the developing baby in the womb. This is why many see this passage as implying that an unborn child should be thought of as a human person from the point of conception in his mother's womb. David's confession that he was a sinner from conception further testifies to his belief in the personhood from conception, since only persons can be considered sinners. Very helpful note. 
The Bible teaches that life begins at conception, and that truth is the engine that pulls a whole train of implications behind it about the sanctity of human life from that very moment of conception. Secondly, we learn from this verse and from other passages of Scripture that sin begins at conception. That is, we are sinners from the moment our mothers conceive us. And that's because we inherit the guilt of Adam's first sin since he represented us in the Garden of Eden by God's design. As Romans 5 verse 12 says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned, meaning all sinned in the one man in Adam. And Romans 5.19 says, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So we are sinners from the moment of conception. We are born guilty, guilty of Adam's sin. And we are born sinful with a sinful heart. And we sin, we commit sins. And when we commit sin, we cannot blame Adam for our sin. We cannot blame it on the fact that we were sinful from conception and none of that absolves us of personal responsibility for our sin. Notice David doesn't say here, I know I sinned with the whole Bathsheba thing, but really it wasn't my fault because I was born sinful. No, the fact that he was born sinful is something he confesses to God. It's something he acknowledges as part of his guilt before God. It's part of the reason why he needs the mercy of God. So when we sin, we know that we are guilty of that sin. We can't blame Adam. We can't blame our mother. We can only blame ourselves for choosing to sin against our gracious God. We have to take responsibility for that sin. And if we confess that sin to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us, as 1 John 1, 9 tells us. But the point here is that sin begins at conception. And this should shape our understanding of two things, of conversion and of sanctification. It should shape our understanding of conversion, being saved by God, because it helps us see that what people need is not just moral improvement, what people need is a new heart. People are sinful from birth, and so they need to be born again. And that comes from the Holy Spirit working through our proclamation of the gospel. This should also shape, also shape our understanding of sanctification, of our growth in godliness as Christians. Sanctification is not just about our actions, it's about our hearts. We need to be sanctified, made more holy, not just outwardly, but also inwardly. It's not just the outside of the cup that needs to be washed, it's the inside also. It's not just the fruit that needs to change, it's also the root that needs to change. The root that's been there from the very beginning, which makes us all the more dependent on God's grace and the work of the Spirit because only the Spirit can sanctify us on the inside. Only He can get in there under the surface, which He is gracious to do through the means of grace He's given us. Third thing, by way of application here, this should inform our parenting. This should inform the way we think about our children and the way we seek to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Our children are born sinners. Matthew Henry said, we have from our birth the snares of sin in our bodies, 
the seeds of sin in our souls and a stain of sin upon both. The snares of sin in our bodies, the seeds of sin in our souls, and a stain of sin upon both. Our children are sinful from the moment of conception. A normal birth is such a joyous occasion, and that is right and good, but we need to make sure we think biblically about babies. Our children are born sinners in need of a Savior, and so it should be our most fervent prayer and our highest priority in parenting to do all we can, all God has called us to do, to point our children to the Savior. We cannot change their hearts, but we can point them to the one who can, to the one who has changed our hearts by his sovereign grace. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, David says, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That's our first point, sinful from the beginning. Let's look at our second point now, sinful in the inward being. Sinful in the inward being. Look at verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Now, I think there's a sense in which David's looking back and looking forward in this verse. He's looking back on his own sin that he's just been confessing, and he's acknowledging that even though God delights in truth in the inward being, he was not truthful in his inward being. And even though God teaches him wisdom in the secret heart, so much of what he did was not wise. It was foolish. So in that sense, this is part of his confession of sin to God. But at the same time, I think he's also looking forward. He's talking about what God delights in now and going forward. He's talking about what God is teaching him now and going forward. And we'll look at each half of the verse through both of those lenses, looking back and looking forward. We'll keep both of those perspectives in mind. In the first half of the verse, he says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You, God, delight in truth in the inward being. God is a God of truth. He is full of truth. He himself is the truth. And he delights in truth in us. You delight in truth in the inward being. God does not delight in falsehood in the inward being. He does not delight in hypocrisy and insincerity. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees and scribes in Matthew 15 verses 7 and 8. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 through 28, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. God does not delight in that. 
He does not delight in merely external religion. He delights in truth in the inward being. So looking back, David is confessing that he was not truthful in his inward being. He was the king of Israel. He was the leader of God's people. He was to be an example to God's people. He was to be the ideal Israelite. And yet on the inside, he was unclean. He was not truthful in the inward being. And he wasn't truthful to others, especially to Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. That's looking back, but looking forward, David recognizes that this is what God delights in. He delights in truth in the inward being. That's why David goes on to say in verse 10 of Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And then down in verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God does not delight in sacrifices and burnt offerings that have no heart behind them. He does not delight in external religious practices that come from hard and proud hearts. He delights in broken and contrite hearts, soft hearts, humble hearts. He delights in truth in the inward being. Then in the second half of the verse, David says, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Looking back, again, so much of what David did was not wise, it was foolish. It was not wise for him to commit adultery with Bathsheba. That was foolish. It was not wise for him to deceive Uriah, her husband. It was foolish for him to do so. It was not wise for him to murder Uriah. It was foolish. It was not wise for him to continue in unrepentance for a time about all those things. It was foolish. In David's secret heart, there was not wisdom, there was folly. In his heart, there was not love and purity. There was lust and pride. In his heart, there was not contrition and repentance. There was corruption and refusal to acknowledge his sin. Of course, all that changed after Nathan came to him and confronted him, after the Holy Spirit convicted him of his sin. And now he sees that it is God who teaches him wisdom in the secret heart. God teaches us wisdom in our hearts. And he is a patient teacher, isn't he? He's a skillful teacher, a wise teacher of wisdom. He teaches us wisdom through his word, like in the book of Proverbs. He teaches us wisdom through the example of others, whether positive examples of wisdom or negative examples of folly. He teaches us wisdom through our own folly as we repent of our foolishness and learn and grow through our own failures. He teaches us wisdom through a variety of means and makes us more like himself. The students become more like the teacher. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Let me mention a few points of application here and then we'll draw to a close this evening. First, 
We need to follow the word on this and not the world. All of this is very countercultural. As I mentioned earlier, the elders and deacons have been reading together the giveaway book, Strange New World by Carl Truman. And in that book, he talks about how modern culture basically says, to use the language of this verse, that whatever is in your inward being or your secret heart is the real you. And regardless of what it is, it needs to be expressed by you and accepted by everyone else and celebrated by everyone else. I think we see that especially with regard to the LGBTQ array. Whatever you feel in your inward being and your secret heart, that's who you are and you should express who you are. That's what much of our modern world tells us. But the word, the word of God, tells us that whatever's in our inward being or secret heart that's sinful shouldn't be expressed, it should be confessed. It shouldn't be embraced. It should be forsaken and forgiven through Christ. Our culture says that in order to be authentic, we must recognize and express our innermost desires and seek to conform everything else to those desires, even our bodies, as the case may be. But Scripture says that in order to be authentic, we must recognize and repent of our innermost desires insofar as they are sinful and seek to conform them to the image of Christ through the gospel. Our world says to find your truth, whatever it is, and to live your truth. But God delights in truth in your inward being. Not your truth, but his truth. God teaches us wisdom in our secret heart. Not our wisdom, but his wisdom. And the way of wisdom is to follow the word on this, not the world. Secondly, this verse should remind us that what's on the inside matters more than what's on the outside. What's on the outside certainly matters, but what's on the inside matters more. God delights in truth in the inward being, and he teaches us wisdom in the secret heart. He does not delight in sacrifices or burnt offerings, that is, merely external things, if there's not also a broken and contrite heart behind them. Like an apple tree. Perhaps some of you have been apple picking recently. The quality of the fruit is, of course, important, but the health of the roots and the trunk and the sap of the tree is even more important because if you don't have a healthy tree, you're not going to have healthy fruit. If you have a rotten tree, you're going to have rotten fruit, but if the tree is good, the fruit will be good also. We want to have truth and wisdom down in our inward being, down in our secret heart. We want to be healthy down in our roots, in our trunk, in our sap. Healthy on the inside, not just on the outside. So let me encourage you to do a scan of your life using this verse. For example, how's your walk with the Lord? Ask yourself that question. How's my walk with the Lord? 
Do you look good on the outside, in the eyes of others? But on the inside, are you all hollowed out spiritually? Are you decaying spiritually? If you are, take it to the Lord. Bring it to God. Ask him to change you, to change you down at the level of your inward being, down in your secret heart. How's your marriage if you're married? Do you look good on the outside in the eyes of others? Everything looks like it's going well. You seem, both of you, pretty well put together. But on the inside, is your marriage falling apart? Is it growing and bearing fruit or is it decaying and declining? If it's not good on the inside, get help. Get help from the Lord. Get help from others. Don't be content with a rotting marriage. Pursue truth and wisdom on the inside. Kids, let me encourage you, children, to pursue truth and wisdom in your heart. Pursue truth and wisdom in your heart. Be a truthful person, a person who tells the truth and doesn't lie. And learn to be wise and not foolish in the way you think and the choices that you make. How do you do that? Well, first and foremost, by putting your trust in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, if you haven't done that already. And then you read your Bible every day and try to learn all you can from it. That is how God teaches us wisdom. That is what we know about truth. You pray for truth and wisdom in your heart, in your life. Pray with your parents. Pray on your own for these things. You listen to sermons and worship God with the congregation on Sundays. You learn from other Christians, especially older ones. You read good books that will be good for your soul. And in all of that, you look to Jesus Christ in humble faith, who is the one who teaches us wisdom in our secret heart. And that's the third thing I want to mention by way of application here about Jesus Christ. Christ was everything David wasn't. Where David failed, the son of David succeeded. Jesus was full of truth in his inward being and full of wisdom in his secret heart. He was full of grace and truth, John 1. He is the truth, John 14. He is also the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians 1. He is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom, and knowledge, Colossians 2. He is therefore worthy of our worship because there's no one else like him. And he is worthy of our thanks and gratitude because we are clothed in his righteousness. He obeyed where David disobeyed. And his obedience is counted as ours when we put our trust in him alone. Jesus never told a lie. Jesus never did anything unwise. He was perfectly truthful and perfectly wise every moment of his earthly life. And that perfect record of perfect obedience is now reckoned to be our record before God the judge. And we stand before his throne dressed in the righteousness of Christ alone. Fourth and finally, God is making us more like Christ. 
God, by his grace, is making us more like Christ in our inward being and in our secret heart. God, by his grace, is making us more and more true in our inward being. God, by his grace, is teaching us wisdom in our secret heart. He is making us more like his son. So even though we too were brought forth in iniquity, even though we too were sinful from conception, God has saved us from our sins through his son. Jesus atoned for every single one of our falsehoods and foolishnesses. He threw away those filthy garments and he has clothed us in his own perfect truth and wisdom. But regarding the remnant of falsehood and foolishness that remains in us, that dogs us every day, he is sanctifying us more and more each day through the means of grace. He is enabling us more and more to die unto those sins and to live unto righteousness. So God is making us more like Christ in our inward being and our secret heart. That gives us hope. That gives us confidence in the midst of our struggles. So where do you need to be made more like Christ this evening? What part of your inward being or your secret heart most needs to be sanctified? Christ, our Savior, is mighty to save. Look to him, trust in him, and he will make you more like himself. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would make us more like you. We know that our problem of sin goes way back to the beginning. We know that it is inward as well as outward. But we thank you for the forgiveness of our sins through your atoning work on the cross. And we thank you also for your perfect truthfulness and perfect wisdom that counts as ours when we believe in you. And we pray that you would conform us more into your image in our inward being and our secret heart. May we not be conformed to the image of the world or to our own sinful desires, but please instead make us more like you. And we pray for that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's take just a minute.